0: Father, we are very grateful that we have this opportunity to study your word. We reflect upon the fact that throughout most of church history, most believers have probably not had the kind of freedom that we have. We are indeed grateful that we have this freedom in this nation, and we pray for our leaders. We pray for those who have an understanding of the truth. We pray for those who seek to do everything they can to stand for the truth and to not compromise we pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them. We pray for others who do not have an appreciation for our history, do not have an appreciation for the centuries of, of legal development and thought, biblical th- biblically-based thought, that preceded the writing of our Constitution, our laws, which have been the foundation for the prosperity and the freedom in this nation. And because they do not have that Appreciation, they seek to destroy it. We pray that you would prevent them from doing so. And in fact, we pray that you might give them the light necessary to change their mind. Father, we pray for us that we might be faithful in studying your word, that we might buy the truth and sell it not, and that we might not treat this lightly as we study your word, but realize that everything we learn, every part of the, your word, is important for us to understand as it fits together in the mosaic of your revelation and your, your thinking so that we can think as you think. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. We are in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and last time, which was actually two weeks ago since last Thursday night, we were in, uh, I was up in D.C. for uh, my dad's service Uh, Some of you may not know, we also had a service that same morning for my aunt. My uncle had been buried there a little over two years ago. My aunt died a little over a year ago, and so we were also uh, interring her uh, cremation urn with my uncle. So it made for a somewhat um, busy, busy time. Romans eight seventeen talks about suffering. Now, this is a crucial idea because this idea that is introduced by Paul here as he brings in suffering, he connects suffering as we see and as we studied in verses 16 and 17 to being in our future destiny with Christ, to being a joint heir with Christ. And we have to repunctuate the verse a little bit. If children, heirs also, heirs of God, which is true of all children of God. Now, there's a difference here, and and I've I've stressed it before, but I want to remind you that there is a difference in two phrases, and these these are critical phrases for proper interpretation of this text. Sons of God, which is the Greek word huias, which refers to adult sons, and children of God, which is techna, something has encountered a problem and needed to close. I have no idea why that closed the other program. Okay, there it is. The, the Techna, the children of God, refer to every believer. But huyas refers only the, to those who advance to spiritual maturity. And it's important to understand that difference because as we see in this verse... Those who become joint heirs with Christ are those who suffer with him. And as I pointed out, suffering is not something extreme. Some people think suffering is something that is is on a great order of, of pain and adversity, but it's just basically having to face and deal with issues in the, in the cosmic system, in, in, in the devil's world, in a corrupt, fallen universe. And every day as we bump heads with the uh, corruption that is reality around us, we suffer whenever we have to make right decisions for the truth and any kind, there's any sort of negative blowback, it is, that's part of suffering because rather than taking the path of least resistance, we took the path of righteousness and truth and we have experienced a negative reaction from it and that is necessary for us to grow and mature spiritually. So we have to put these sufferings into perspective, and they're necessary for that future time. So we're shifting our focus as we go through the text here when we, when it talks about heirship and inheritance to what happens when the Messianic kingdom is established, when Jesus uh, comes back, and the church-age believers rule and reign with him as co-heirs during the millennial kingdom. So there's a focus now not just on, not on the present time, but on living in the present in light of that future uh, reality and that ultimate destiny. And that ultimate destiny is referred to as glory. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now that glory is different from the other glory, the mention of glorified with him in verse 17. Glorified with him means that we are recognized and elevated as joint heirs with Christ at, at the judgment seat of Christ when we receive uh, our rewards. The glory that's revealed in us is related to that eternal state. So there has to be a distinction in the, an understanding of the ways in which glory is used in this particular passage now critical to our preparation is testing we have to be tested this is true in every endeavor in life if you're going to succeed at anything you have to go through testing to make sure you have qualified by learning what you needed to have learned to reach a certain point unfortunately there are people in the field of education philosophy today who don't understand the purpose of testing And they think, uh, and and because that's become muddled in education, we have a major problem today because we think that, that we can fix the failures that are occurring in the home and fix the failures that are occurring uh, because of, uh, uh, of, of society's societal breakdowns of discipline, which all impacts the classroom, that we can fix the education failures by just assessing or mandating certain tests. And the result of that is is just the opposite. That, that seems to be the intuitive uh, response. But the reality is when you start imposing tests as your criteria, then what happens is the teachers have to teach to the test because their evaluation and their assessments are based on how well the students do on the test. And you're no longer teaching to to learn; you're teaching to pass tests. And that that doesn't work in, in the real world. Tests are not don't function in that way. So testing is is happens to be a, a way in which you face the realities of life and have to utilize and operate and apply the knowledge, the understanding that you've acquired in, in the classroom. And for the Christian, that means applying it to our thinking so that rather than being run over by adversity, we stand firm trusting the Lord. doesn't mean the adversity isn't painful. It doesn't mean the adversity isn't emotionally traumatic. And i pointed out many times the Lord Jesus Christ went through emotional trauma In the Garden of Gethsemane, the words that are used there, the fact that he physically sweated blood shows how intense the emotional and physical pressure was as he anticipated what would take place the next day before he went to the cross. It's a very real emotional pressure. And I I find that too many Christians have a shallow view of emotion. Either on the one hand, you try to suppress it and act like it's not really there, or on the other hand, you just let it reign supreme and and run your life. And that's not true. The Lord Jesus Christ did not let that emotion run his life or make his decisions, but neither did he act like it really wasn't there, and life was just fun. Life was just great and wonderful, and everything was was, uh, uh, just copacetic. He he recognized and dealt with the realities of, of that emotion, but he didn 't let it dictate what he was going to do. He was not going to be mastered uh, by the emotion generated from the circumstances. So, I went through some categories of suffering last time i 'm just going to hit them very quickly this time. There was preventative suffering it warns and instructs, according to job thirty three sixteen it teaches us to turn from sin, according to job thirty three seventeen it is designed to prevent arrogance and sin associated with arrogance. Job 33:17b. It is to protect us from death—that is not eternal death, but tempor- the temporal death or a death-like existence from living a non-productive spiritual life. Job 33:30. 30. So the first category is preventative suffering in several different ways. Then there's corrective. Or disciplinary suffering, also known as punitive suffering, where the Lord punishes the believer for disobedience. This is found in Proverbs three eleven and twelve, Psalm six one. The third category we looked at was suffering designed to teach us. Job thirty six twenty two, Job thirty four twenty two, Psalm twenty five eight through uh, fourteen. Psalm 25, 8 through 14 for educational suffering. And Psalm 94, 12. Also Psalm 119, 66, 67, and 71. We'll run into this again. Deuteronomy 8, 3 as well. Uh, Psalm 119, 50, 67, and 71. A lot of different verses here. Psalm 77, 1 through 3. And then John 11, 14 through 15 was the <clears throat> that teaching and instructing the uh, disciples with reference to their strengthening their faith. 2 Corinthians 8, 1, 2, and 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 1, 2, and 9. And then we come to the fourth category, suffering to glorify God. This is seen in jo- John 9, 3 with the man born blind, not because he sinned or his parents sinned, but so that God would be glorified when he was healed. John 11:4. 4, uh, just think of all of the suffering, adversity, misery that went into the circumstances when Lazarus died. Lazarus' physical pain, Lazarus' emotional and mental anguish, the anguish and sorrow of Mary and Martha and his friends and family as they surrounded the tomb and they were still there in grief, uh, four days after, not four years, I got it right this time, uh, four days after Lazarus died. And there was, because of that anguish, the Lord Jesus Christ wept. He looked upon their uh, anguish and their sorrow and their grief, and he wept. That is one of the most striking things in my thinking, because we don't have a Really good handle on and theology of emotion. And here, Jesus, in his humanity, perfect humanity that never sinned, gets quite emotional. And he weeps. But the reason he weeps is because of the grief that he sees the sorrow, the anguish on the part of people who have a, experienced death and the loss of a loved one, which God did not design. That was not God's original intent for man to go through that. That is not what God intended. I remember first one of the few, first few times I taught that, people said, what do you mean God didn't intended that? No, God didn't. That was the punishment for sin. And it shows the compassion that the Lord Jesus Christ had in his humanity for the suffering of people who were going through something that was not their fault. It was because they were living in a in a fallen, corrupt world. Suffering to glorify God also, uh, Paul's suffering with the uh, thorn in the flesh which was a demon, a messenger, literally an angelos, an angel of Satan, which means it's a demon, sent to antagonize, to buffet uh, Paul. That's to control his arrogance. Uh, But he was to learn that God's grace was sufficient for him, and this would glorify God. Also Psalm 50, verse 15, God says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Then the fifth category was suffering to remove distractions and focus on the important issues of life. Too many of us today, we have so much going on. If you think about all the decisions and all of the things that, that, that stimulate us today from the time we wake up in the morning to the time we go to bed, and you compare that to what someone uh, up to the end of the 19th century experienced, it's it's profound. They, they had an extremely simple, undistracted way of life. And they could spend time reading and thinking if they lived on the farm, which most people did. They, they had time to think and reflect as they were going about various, various chores. But now we have all these distractions and we love our entertainment. We are entertainment addicts. Uh, true confessions, I, my name is Robbie and I'm an addict to entertainment. We all are because it, it, it stimulates us part of our culture, but it's a distraction from studying the word and focusing on our mission and ministry uh, to, to the Lord. It's interesting, I'm reading the new third volume of William Manchester's uh, massive work on Winston Churchill. The Last Lion. It just recently came out. I read most of the first one and bits and pieces of the second one, and I've looking, been looking forward to I didn't know this one was going to come out because Manchester died, and I believe it was 2003 or 2004, and he had had a uh, series of strokes in the late mid to late 90s and had not been able to write after that. He could think. He was quick. His mind was good, but he couldn't make that transfer from uh, his mental ideas verbally expressed, but he couldn't get it on paper. He couldn't write anymore. And so uh, he commissioned another writer to finish the task when he died, and that has now come out. And it's just remarkable, he he uh, anticipated... He was a brilliant man. He anticipated the arrival of television, but, it dis- but the reality disappointed him greatly, and he never watched it because it would be such a waste of time and destruct- destroyed productivity. I actually had a deacon in Connecticut. I guess Dave's probably no- 94, 95 now. Uh, great, great war hero. He was he was with the Marines that came in and replaced my dad. My dad was in the first wave at Iwo Jima. Uh, was uh, medevac at the end of the second day, and on the third day, Dave Tongren came in, and uh, with a replacement division, was probably one of the few Marines that was not wounded and remained on, uh, on on Iwo Jima for the next 28 days. And Dave came back, and he was a native from Preston City, and he is, I don't know, I think he's still a deacon at Preston City Bible Church. We used to kind of laugh because he was deaf, and when anything controversial came up, we would just talk in our normal voices, and he would just nod his head and go right along with everything. But Dave never had a television. Never, had a, never owned a television, raised his kids, never had a television, never allowed one in the house, never had air conditioning either. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. Gets up to 90 there in the summer. Anyway, and talk about suffering. So (laughs) suffering is to remove distractions and the things that you can accomplish just by removing some of these things from our life. Okay, that brings us to the next part of this study on suffering, which is 10 reasons why we suffer, understanding why we suffer. And one of the key passages for our first category is our passage in Romans uh, 8, verses 18 uh, down through twenty twenty four. The first reason is because of Adamic responsibility. Adam made a bad decision, and we all suffer its consequences. That's a form of, I think it's the uh, third or fourth reason, which is we're associated with people who make bad decisions. Well, this is the ultimate association. We're associated with Adam. Because Adam sinned and disobeyed God, immediately the human race was plunged into Spiritual death, separation from God. It's, it's in in, in a sense, it's like having a a, um, a fan plugged into a wall outlet. As long as it's plugged into the wall outlet, it's receiving energy and moving. But once it's removed from the fan from the outlet, it still has the semblance of life. But if you watch it for a little while, it slows down and slows down until eventually it dies. The spiritual death of Genesis 2.17 is pulling the plug on on the human race. They didn't die physically for a number of years. That was a consequence of that spiritual death, that condemnation, that punishment that God imposed upon the human race because they disobeyed him by eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But as we studied in the past, that didn't just affect Adam and Eve and their relationship to God. It affected The animal kingdom, the serpent, we're told, was cursed more than all of the other animals. And that means that that there's a, a difference in degree. There's a judgment on the serpent that's worse than the judgment on the rest of the animal kingdom. It clearly states that the rest of the animal kingdom came under a judgment. There was corruption that impacted them. There was a corruption that impacted uh, Eve, in terms of her bodily functions in relation to uh, procreation and in relationship to uh, giving birth, there was now pain and sorrow that was increased. And Adam, in relation to the soil, the soil now produced, was going to produce uh, thistles and thorns, and uh, he would have to uh, scratch out, uh, in terms of farming, scratch out his uh, living through the sweat of the brow, so the curse impacted creation, all of the elements. It has a had a physical uh, physical impact. We know in in physics there are the two laws of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics states that matter is neither created nor, destro- nor destroyed, or energy is neither created nor destroyed. Now there was a time though when that wasn't true. Genesis chapter 1, uh, the, during the creation week, energy and matter are being created and they are being organized. And it's not until uh, the completion of the creation week that that first law of thermodynamics would have gone into effect when there would be no more creation of matter and energy. But the second law of thermodynamics, that all energy is moving into a state of entropy, a state where it's not usable. It just goes from being usable to not being usable. We don't lose energy or or matter because of the first law. Uh, That second law doesn't go into effect until Adam sins, and the moment Adam sinned, one of the consequences was that everything in the creation started moving into a d- direction of disorder and chaos. And it's still running down and eventually it will run down. This is one of those sophisticated little arguments against the uh, evolutionary model. Is if you start with a finite amount of matter or energy, how long does it, it how long does it take for it to run down? Well, it will run down before eternity. If we started billions of years ago with a finite amount, it would run down by now. It would would have dissipated by now because they believe in the eternality of matter. So, So it would have run down by now. If it's finite to begin with, it can't run for an infinite length of time. But that bypasses their presuppositions. So Adamic responsibility... Uh, is brings the fall, brings corruption into uh, everything in the planet. Everything is, is, is affected that way. So nothing is, after Adam sins, nothing is the way it's supposed to be. We go out and we want to work in the garden and we have weeds that come up. It's not what it's supposed to be. We have to weed over and over again. We go out and we try to uh, do anything or build anything and sooner or later it, it rusts or it grows and we have to cut it or it uh, uh, disintegrates in the uh, humidity and rots uh, it all runs down nothing is the way it's supposed to be and every time we experience frustration with the way creation is we are reminded that things aren't the way they ought to be there's something inside of us that's, that says it shouldn't be this way and it shouldn't. It wasn't originally designed that way. I think this is part of that inner testimony of God's existence, and that God is built into every one of us, sort of that uh, God-shaped vacuum that Ecclesiastes talks about. Romans eight eighteen confirms this in relation to uh, in relation to creation. Paul says in verse eighteen, "For I consider." Or I think, or I've come to, I think, this is a Greek verb, logizomai, which has to do, which where we get our word logic, comes from the root logos, uh, a word, a thought, a matter, a thing and it has to do with thinking, considering, reflecting upon something. It's often used to present a logical conclusion from stated premises. So I think that it should best be translated to get the sense that I've come to the conclusion as a result of the doctrine that Paul has learned that the sufferings of this present time, that includes all degrees of adversity, difficulty, the sufferings of this present time, that's an interesting phrase in the Greek, and it it's the same it's the there are two different ways to express the concept of now in Greek one word is arti, the other word is noon noon indicates a broader sense Artie would indicate something happening right now in the immediate present today or tomorrow as opposed to um, we're um, So we might say, well, we're we're now looking at um, purchasing some land for the church. I mean, that's not a true statement, but you might say something like that. We're now, and that just covers a general, broad period of time. Whereas I might uh, contrast that by saying, uh, right now we don't have any plans. You now there's a general sense in which we want to do something now in a broad time period, but right now in the immediate, there's no plans to do anything. So that would express the difference between those two words. Paul uses it that way in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, uh, verses 11 through 13. He says, for now we see through a mirror enigmatically. That is the word now, meaning right now. Because the mirror is the Word of God, and it's not complete the perfect hasn't come it hasn't been the word of God the canon hadn't been completed yet and so right now we, we our, our understanding is affected by the fact that we don't have a complete revelation and then he says, but now these three things will abide now is a broader term, what abides beyond the period of the uh, writing of the canon, the apostolic period. What now abides generally are faith, hope, and love. So that shows the distinction between the two words. Well, this is the word for a general period of time. There are several times that this phrase is used in Romans, and it always refers to this present age or dispensation. So he's saying the suffering of this present time in contrast to the future time when the Messiah comes. So they're drawing out this distinction between living under the present era and the future era of the millennial kingdom. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And that glory refers to our future glorification and when we're in our glorified bodies and ruling and reigning with Christ. Romans 8, 19, For the earnest expectation or the longing... The, the desire, there, there is something within us. And I see this and I hear this with folks as the older they get, they say, I'm just so tired of living in this corrupt world. I just can't wait to go be with the Lord and be face to face with the Lord. Not that they're uh, wanting to end things soon. They're just, they, we feel the tension of living in this fallen world and we anticipate, look forward to the, that future time When there'll be no, for us in our resurrection body, there'll be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, the old things will be passed away. So there's this longing, there's this anticipation of something that's much better. So there's an earnest expectation or a longing for the creation. There's a personification here of the uh, material creation to compare it with human beings. So the creation itself is being depicted as if it has these feelings and these hopes which are uh, analogous to ours the the longing of the creation eagerly waiting for the revealing the revelation the disclosure the unveiling of the sons of god now see this takes us back then to verse uh verse 14 for as many as are led by the spirit that is those who are growing to maturity of uh, of god these are sons of god and these are the ones who are growing to maturity and so there will be a disclosure and revelation of this group of believers known as the sons of God. These are the ones who will rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. These sons of God will, sons of God will be unveiled at the beginning of the millennial kingdom as those who will be joint heirs with Christ in ruling and reigning with him so there 's this this longing on the part of the creation to that time period because at that time period, the curse is partially rolled back, not completely rolled back because we 're still living in a in a fallen world, but it will be partially rolled back, For example, one of the consequences of of the curse is is the antagonism in the animal kingdom, the development of carnivores. And after Adam sinned, you wouldn't want to go put your hand into a cobra's den. The lion would not be lying down with the wolf. But when we get into the millennial kingdom, that aspect of the curse will be rolled back. But the curse itself is not completely obliterated. It's still going to be a fallen world and bear the scars of of all of history. But there will be a certain amount of change. People will live uh, lengthy lives, probably the entire length, the entire time of the millennial kingdom. So it will be more like the period between the fall and the flood than the period of time since the flood. So it's it's rolling back the curse uh, to a large degree. And so there, there's this expectation of that time. And then we're told and given a little further explanation of verse 20 for the creation, was subjected to futility or vanity, not willingly, you know, again, he's personifying creation as if it has volition, but because of him, because of God's plan, who subjected it in hope. With This would be subjected it with reference to hope. Now, when you think of hope, don't think of hope in the present, but hope is always something that is fulfilled in the future in biblical teaching. It's fulfilled eschatologically when Jesus comes back. Hope is a confident expectation of something in the distance. So we're talking about expectations here. The expectation of the creation is the rolling back of the curse, uh, and uh, God subjected the creation to this curse in hope, so there's this anticipation of something that will be resolved. Why, verse 21? Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of cor- corruption. So what this is saying is the creation itself is under a bondage. We as believers are born in bondage to the sin nature, but inanimate creation is under the bondage of sin. The world isn't what we want it to be. Life is never going to be what you want it to be. If you think life is going to be wonderful and uh, and you have an idealistic view or utopic view of life, you will only be disappointed because we live we're living under in a state of corruption. So the creation is under a state of bondage of corruption. Uh, It also will be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, notice the shift here. Children of God relates to all believers. Previously, we talked about the sons of God, which are those who pursued maturity in their spiritual life. But here, this time period during the millennial kingdom is for all believers, and it is a time when we, as believers, have uh, experienced real liberty in the millennial kingdom. Okay, so the point, the first point is that the reason we suffer is because of Adam's original sin. And we're living in a corrupt world, and we're living with corrupted people, and we're living with corrupted institutions, and nothing is going to be what it ought to be. And so rather than always living under depression and discouragement, we need to recognize that we just live in a fallen world and God expects us to move out, trust him, have joy because of the hope that we have of this future restoration. Now, one other side note on Romans 118 talks about this expectation of the creation uh, eagerly waits for the revelation. I think the old King James said the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, there is a heresy today, just to kind of let you know that I know about this and that it's around. And it's this idea, it's tied up with some really poor translations from the Old Testament, uh, trying to make the fact that, that there's just going to be this super army of believers in this church age. It's tied to post millennialism and dominion theology and that these this group of spiritual elites are going to uh, take over the world. And this has been a foundation in a lot of erroneous spiritual, I mean, not spiritual, but Christian uh, activism that is motivated by a desire to bring in the kingdom. This is just as utopic as Marxism and Socialism. And it is not biblical because it's grounded on this rejection of a future literal kingdom. It is based on the idea that the church militant is going to bring in the kingdom. And that that connects to something we studied on Tuesday night. That's actually what Diesel was asking a question about on Psalm 110.3. I I didn't catch what he was driving at, but he wanted me to uh, connect that because this is popular. Two years ago, there was that day of prayer uh, maybe you remember they had in an August, and Rick Perry came and spoke, and it was a really big deal. Nearly everybody involved with with that day of prayer came out of a dominion, reconstructionist, manifest sons of God, uh, name it, claim it, background. And, of course, you know, politicians like Rick Perry don't know anything about these things, and so they end up becoming... Uh, duped by some of these kinds of programs that come out, thinking they're just doing something that, that is a, a good thing to have a day of prayer, not realizing that there are these theological undercurrents running uh, uh, behind things. So that was, uh, uh, Diesel was trying to open me up to say something about that, and I didn't, didn't catch that. Okay, second point, individual volitional responsibility. We suffer personally because we make bad decisions. We make bad decisions in what we do, and listen to me, we make bad decisions in how we respond to adversity. It's not just bad decisions on things we do, choosing overt sins, and consequently reaping the negative consequences for those uh, bad decisions, but we make bad decisions in how we choose to respond to adversity. We have horrible things happen. We see horrible things. We, 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 and it generates horrible emotions in us. And then we start acting on those horrible emotions and giving rein to them. And the next thing you know, we're reaping the consequences of that. And we're in a downward spiral into a dark hole of depression because we're not claiming the promises of God. And we haven't learned how to claim the promises of God. And we haven't learned the mental discipline to shut those things out and to focus on our mission as believers and let God deal with the uh, horrible things that are going on in creation. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows that he will also reap. Now, this isn't talking about divine discipline. This isn't talking about additional punishment that God may bring into the life of a a believer because of of ongoing carnality or or sin in the life. This is just talking about the natural consequences of making bad decisions. The trouble is in the spiritual realm, the consequences don't often happen immediately. So we get sucked into a sinful uh, lifestyle, a sinful way of thinking Ten years down the road, we start reaping the consequences, and it's we're a little slow on making the connection between the consequences and the bad behavior. Third uh, reason we suffer is divine discipline. In a punitive sense, there's divine discipline in a positive sense where God is teaching us to discipline our lives and to organize and control things in our life so that we can be productive for Him. But this is talking about discipline in a punitive sense where God intensifies the negative consequences of our own bad decisions to get our attention to get us to get back on track. This is seen in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 verses 5 and 6. There's a quote from Proverbs uh, chapter 3. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My sons do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. See, that's something that needs to come across to parents. A sign of love is discipline the right way, not out of anger, not out of resentment, not because the, the kids have intruded upon your private time or somehow it's, taking away from your personal agenda, but disciplining them because they need to learn right from wrong and there needs to be an objective pattern of of uh, rewards and punishments for children in order to train them. And that's the root word in discipline. is It has the idea of training someone in the right path. So don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Here it's focusing on the negative aspect of that training nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you're not being disciplined by the Lord, then maybe you're a bastard. You're not legitimate. If you think you're a believer, because what this is saying is every believer is going to be disciplined by the Lord because he loves them. That's not a sign of the assurance of your salvation, by the way, so don't take it that way. So there's divine discipline. One reason we suffer is because we continue to stay in rebellion against God. Fourth reason. This is, uh, this is one that applies in a lot of ways. Think of the concentric circles of the people that you're associated with. If you're married, you have a spouse. You will be positively and negatively impacted by the decisions of your spouse. So pick your spouse wisely. Then there are your children. can't do anything about your parents. They may wish they could do something about you, but you can't do anything about them. You didn't pick them. They're yours for the duration. But you have children. And those children may bring great joy in your life, and they may bring great misery in your life, and in most cases they bring some of both. But they're your children, then eventually grandchildren. Then you have people you are associated with in business. There may be business partners. There may be people who uh, you work for. If Let's say you work for for a large company. You work for a company, let's say an oil company. I won't name any oil companies. This is just a generic answer, a uh, generic illustration. And somebody uh, gets involved in some very bad decisions. Uh, some you, you can think of numerous examples recently. Somebody in management. Makes bad decisions. Sometimes they make bad decisions because of their own arrogance and their own selfishness. And next thing you know, the company is in very bad shape and people are losing their jobs because of bad management. That is just one way in which we are associated with people who make bad decisions and we suffer because those people make bad decisions. So we can, uh, uh, we're associated with someone who may be suffering from. Um, the fact that they are reaping what they are sowing, and we may be involved in an organization where someone is under divine discipline, and consequently the company is going through problems because of those associations. It could be your spouse. It may have nothing to do with you. But I find a lot of people, the first thing they do is, I must have done something wrong. Well, as I go through all these explanations, I think that it's pretty easy for us to decide, am I in fellowship, am I really trying to walk with the Lord, or am I living in rank carnality? If the answer is I'm living in rank carnality, then we need to confess our sins, and we need to get our uh, bodies back into Bible class and start walking with the Lord. That's the solution. But if we're already there... And bad things are happening, then it could be for any number of reasons that have nothing to do with us. But our sin nature is so self absorbed, the first thing we say is, What did I do wrong? I'm a failure. I'm a loser. And immediately, what have we done? We've become a failure and a loser because of our self absorption. So we need to get our eyes off of self always and get our eyes on the Lord. You go through suffering, what's the solution? Make sure you're in fellowship, put your eyes on the Lord, start claiming promises, and it doesn't really matter why you're going through the suffering. Whether it's your fault, your wife's fault, your husband's fault, your kid's fault, your employer's fault, the government's fault, George Soros' fault, Obama's fault, it doesn't matter. What matters is let's take what is a really bad situation and turn it into something positive for the Lord by claiming promises and being, uh, being obedient to the word. And then it's what it was meant for bad will turn into good. That's where we end, why we end up with Romans 8:28 and 29 later on. Then the next reason is just living in the cosmic system. Now this is different from the first one. The first one just focused on the fact that we live in a corrupt world Everything's corrupt, nothing's really going going to work the way it should work. This is talking about the fact that we live in a world that is dominated by people who think like the devil. And it doesn't matter whether they're a believer or not, the people who run the systems and the governments of this world, by and large, think like the devil, not like Jesus. They just don't. I don't care how great a believer some president was or some congressman was, I will tell you that they were not focused on the word and they probably are living on uh, a lot of cosmic system ideas. Now, if you go back in history, there may be some examples that are different, but in our lifetime, there are very few uh, examples of political and and, uh, national leaders Who've really had a clear focus on the Word of God as their marching orders and, and, and from a, from a solid uh, position. They just weren't trained that way. So we live in the cosmic system. And because we live in the cosmic system, it's always going to be difficult and there always will be suffering. There will be suffering at your job site. Whatever you do, You're dealing with unbelievers. You're dealing with fallen creatures who operate on a cosmic system scale of values. You're living in under a government that is more and more being dominated by cosmic system values. And so it's always going to be difficult. So rather than caving in to depression and discouragement, We need to get our focus back on the Lord, claiming promises and executing God's mission for our life as rigorously as we can. Now, there are some positive aspects that come uh, out of suffering. Number one, it's a wake-up call evangelistically. In Acts 16, we see the suffering that was the potential suffering coming upon the Philippian jailer. He's in charge of the security of the prisoners, but under the Roman system, if the prisoners escaped under your watch, then you died. Now, the Philippian jailer we know was probably the smallest person in the Bible because he slept on his watch. It's a wake up call. And what does he do? He immediately comes to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? Because as soon as the, 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 the bars, the, the prison opened up and the prisoners could escape, he knew that his head was on the chopping block. So he wants to know how he can be saved and he, he's, he saves. He's open. So suffering can, can wake people up to the need for the gospel, the need to secure their eternal destiny. Seventh thing is that suffering motivates us to learn doctrine. When people go through tough times, all of a sudden they recognize they can't handle it. They need to get into Bible class. I know that for many, many people, myself included, can point to times in their life when it was all they could do to drag themselves to church every single night because they knew that no matter what else was taught, they were going to come out at the end of class being reminded that God was faithful. God has a plan for your life. If you're still alive, God still has a plan for your life. It's not too late, and there's hope, and there's a future. But you have to get with it spiritually, and you hear that day in and day out. You're able to make it another day, able to uh, crawl through another 24-hour period until things begin to reverse course. Psalm 119.71 says, the, the psalmist said, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. So we go through suffering, it motivates us to learn the word and make it the priority that it should be. As Solomon says in Proverbs, we're to buy truth and sell it not. The eighth point, we're to be a witness to our neighbors. As we go through adversity, people watch. Now, you may not think anybody watches you, but you'd be surprised how many unbelievers out there and how many believers know all about you. They know that you're a Christian. They know exactly what goes on in your, your life. They watch you in the morning, on Sunday morning, get up and get in your car as they're look, looking out through their bloodshot eyes uh, trying to recover from the night before. They look out to see if the paper's there, and they see you drive out your driveway. And they see you come back, and they note this over time. They know that you're a Christian. You go to church. You're one of them. That's a, that's a t- part of your testimony, and then people watch you, and they observe us, and how we handle adversity is part of our testimony, part of our witness. 1 Timothy one sixteen, Paul said, And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example For those who would believe, not yet believers, but those who potentially would believe in him for eternal life. And so our life is a testimony to other human beings. But it doesn't stop there. We are also a witness in the angelic conflict. In Ephesians 3.10 states, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, that is, through us, the wisdom of God is made clear through us as we apply the word, then God's wisdom is demonstrated, we become, as it were, exhibit A in a trial. And the people, the the witnesses that are watching are not other human beings. They're the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. These are the angelic forces. They're learning things about God and about grace and about God's faithfulness and love through watching us that they could learn no other way. And they just watch us and they're just amazed. They can't believe that we can screw up as much as we can and God still cares for us. And then we turn back and we trust God and we see His faithfulness, and they see god's faithfulness and that is uh, a testimony to them and then the last reason that we suffer has to do with how we grow and learn in that suffering. we learn you may be going through some suffering right now, you may go through some adversity right now, you may go through something that is so horrible that you can't even imagine why God's taking you through it. And I'm going to tell you something. In five years, in 10 years, as you have moved out of this and grown and matured spiritually, there are going to be people who God brings into your life who are going through what you're going through, and you're going to be able to encourage them and strengthen them, and they're going to look at you as an example that that there is indeed life after all of this misery. And you'll be able to share with them how God took you through that. And that's, that's a, an important part. 2 Corinthians 1-4, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of the things that I see in a lot of churches as a pastor and watching the church scene over the years is that in a lot of big churches you have a lot of programs. Now, some programs are good and some aren't, and there are pastors who like to dump on programs all the time. But the problem I see in churches is when doing the right thing is motivated by an external top-down structure. The deacon board meets and they say, we really need to do this, and whatever it is, And we're going to go out and let's find somebody to head this up and to organize it. We're going to put five people in charge, and we're going to make sure this happens and that they meet once a month and that this is taken care of and that's taken care of. And it flows from the top down from mature believers who are setting up structures, et cetera, for others in the church. And a lot of times what I've seen is that really doesn't work. I've seen it, I've seen churches try to do this with evangelism. Every year they have their evangelism training programs. And they go through teaching on evangelism, they have role play on evangelism, they go out to the malls, the highways and the byways and do evangelism. But when it's all over with, the people aren't witnessing any more than they were before. Because internally they haven't matured as believers to where they are self motivated to share the gospel with people who are going to hell, and, and and this happens in a lot of ways. One of the things I've and, and what I've seen is the real the way it should happen is that as you come to Bible class and as you learn the Word and as you mature, suddenly someday the Holy Spirit finally gets you to turn the light bulb on inside your dark little brain, and you go. I should be witnessing to this person. And see, now all of a sudden it's coming out out of your soul from your spiritual growth. Now, I'll tell you one example around here that I've just been really pleased to see. And that is that over the past almost nine years now in the existence of this church, we have seen a number of men die in this church. In fact, it's almost scary. We've seen a number of men die in this church, and we've seen a number of widows. And what I've been pleased to see is how these widows have encouraged one another. It's not because the board sits and says has gone to one or two of them and said, you know, you've been a widow a pretty good, pretty long time now, and you're pr- fairly mature spiritually. Why don't you get with a couple of others and you guys organize something? It, it's motivated by by their own spiritual growth and their own desire to to minister to one another. That's the way it should be. Now, there are people who come out of structured churches who say, no, 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 there needs to be all this church structure. No, it doesn't. If people are growing spiritually, they're going to meet the needs of one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, and all those one another passages. And that shows a healthy church. Now, if a church is young in terms of spiritually immature, those things don't happen right away. But for people who are in the Word over time, those things happen. And it's so great to see it because it shows that the church is maturing. You have mature believers and they're really responding to the teaching of the word. And that to me is such a, a much greater sign of the health of a church than anything else in you, when you see those kinds of things happening in the congregation because people are it shows that people are really growing and maturing in their spiritual life. Okay, next time we're going to come back Wrap up this one particular section. Finish up probably down to, I don't know how far we'll get because we have to deal with this whole issue of this uh, uh, of the future orientation, uh, verses 22, 23 down through 27. Because that focuses us. This is why we suffer, is it's focusing us on an ultimate goal, and we need to get a better handle on that ultimate goal. This is what the good is in Romans 8:28. Doesn't say all things work together for good. Uh, it it said, all things work together for the good. God is working them together for something in the future, and it's at future orientation that we need to keep focused. That's what enables us to deal with all of the manure we walk through day in and day out. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be strengthened and encouraged by it, to be reminded that we need to keep our future focused. That's our hope, our confident expectation of your plan and our future destiny. Father, we pray that you would encourage and strengthen us and continue to uh, challenge us to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.